And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So, you know, I love getting the opportunity to talk about UFOs, especially fantastical stories. And today fits the bill. This is going to be one that is probably on the borders of belief. But I think with the help of my guest today, Paul Blake Smith, we are going to make this unbelievable story Pretty believable and plausible, especially given what's going on in the world today. Uh, We're talking about the Nixon-Gleason alien encounter, which is the story that Richard Nixon took comedian Jackie Gleason to an Air Force base to show him four dead alien bodies. Uh, It's a wild story. I've heard it before, but never, never before this particular time has so much research been done on it. So uh, let's get right into this, because this is a story that is going to speak for itself. So, Paul... Thank you so much for being on the show today. The thing I have to ask you, first of all, is, you know, you go professionally by Paul Blake Smith. Uh, so how come three names? Usually that's reserved for serial killers. Oh, great. Uh, there's a fashion designer <laughs> named Paul Smith who's like designer handbags. And I wish I had his fortune, but there's an actor named Paul Smith. And uh, there's uh, there's actually a paranormal uh, psychic investigator named Paul Smith. So I oh, figured boy. I'd better do something to change up and make sure. Uh, in <laughs> fact, I was booked for a show and they yeah. said, OK, we're all set for the you tonight. And uh, when I went on, I said, what is it? Where, why aren't you ready like I am? And he said, oh, yeah. there's been a mistake. We got the other Paul Smith, the uh, like uh, remote viewer he is. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, that's just great. He said, we'll have to get back to you some other time. Uh, oh, so, my God. Yeah. So even when I added my middle name, uh, which yeah. I realize is like John Wilkes Booth or Lee Harvey Oswald. But, uh, John Wayne Gacy, if I could throw yeah. another one in there. Uh, how about Edgar Allan Poe? There's a great writer. <laughs> that was all right. He's yeah. all right. I mean, still macabre, right? Yeah. Like you're like serial killer adjacent with him, but it's, you know, <laughs> I, I, that's better. He's still, he's a literary figure. That's nice, right? That's good. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of literary, you know, you wanted to, you want to be a Hollywood screenwriter, right? So you were, you know, you've been working on that kind of stuff as well. Uh, that's a tough business to break into for sure. So uh, how did you get into that as an interest you know, because uh, I think only only crazy people want to do that. Yeah, it turned out to be uh, a fun way to express myself and create fictional stories, sometimes with factual mm-hmm. information. The right. problem is everyone else in Hollywood has a screenplay and they may mm-hmm. know somebody or sleep with somebody. And I was mm-hmm. not willing to do that. Uh, I did make a bit of a breakthrough once with a story about uh, a future president and his daughters who practice in a band, uh, like undercover, incognito. They practice <laughs> in right. the White House, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, we found the producer. We found a band of uh, all-girl uh, young ladies who play rock, and we had it all set up. And then the great uh, economic uh, recession of 2007 hit, and everything went kaflooey. 
So after that, I thought, why don't I turn to books, writing books? People warned me, you know, you're going to get your views across much better writing books than screenplays, which have a very uh, small chance of getting produced. Someone always messes with them, you know, a producer, right. a director. So go to books, Paul. And I did. And I haven't looked back. Uh, that's great. I mean, look, a lot of people I know who wanted to do screenwriting or television writing uh, have gone to books. I mean, it's it's interesting because there's always a trade off. Right. I mean, with you know TV and movies, they're lucrative if you can get the job, which are few and far between. And with books, it's not as financially lucrative, but you've got a better chance of being published. You can get your words out there. People can read it. You can hand a book out to people. You can't really like hand a television set to somebody and tell them to watch it. Yeah. You know, uh, I've been told a, a number of producers were initially interested in the Eisenhower story and now the Nixon story. But mm, okay. you would have to recreate the 50s and the early 70s. Uh, that's right. expensive. You need computer graphics to do all the special effects and UFOs and aliens. That's another right. expense. And now the Writers Guild has uh, uh, gone on strike. That's and, right. That's uh, you correct. know, actors may be joining them. And so the whole thing's coming to another uh, logger's head, as they used to say. It's just a mess. And so nothing's getting made. Projects are getting bottled up. So apparently I'm not going to hold my breath for a Hollywood deal out of this anytime soon. <laughs> well, no one is. So that's that's the, the no, that's upside true. of that. Yeah. You know? No one's so, getting anywhere now. <laughs> no, no, no. It's 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 very true. Except podcasts. You know, uh, we got one here. We're, we're, we get to do this. People get to listen to this. Uh, one other quick little tidbit that I, I caught while researching you. Rush Limbaugh was a Little League umpire? That <laughs> yes. you were? Is I that grew true? up in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And as a 10 and 11-year-old, I was a skinny kid. They made me a pitcher put me out on the mound, and this big, beefy umpire was named Rusty back in those days. And Rusty uh, was a part-time DJ on the uh, local Cape Girardeau, Missouri AM radio station. You know wow. him better as Rush Limbaugh. His dad bought the <laughs> station to put him on the air, and wow. he didn't have much of an income, so he would umpire in the park uh, in Cape Girardeau back in those days. And uh, he was calling the balls and strikes behind, the or behind home plate. Uh, yeah. When I was pitching. So there's my uh, I've never met the guy. Uh, he's passed yeah. away now. I never knew him as an adult. I did mm -hmm. write to him and ask him about the Cape Girardeau UFO crash of 1941. I did not mm -hmm. hear back. Uh, I've been told by another source that he heard about it when he was in high school in Cape Girardeau in the 1960s. So oh, there's a yeah, there's another story. Uh, uh, but you can say anything about anyone, you know, and you got to have yeah. some verification. No, ab absolutely. Well, you know, it's it's funny that you mentioned the verification because, you know, uh, so we're, today we're going to talk about your book, The Nixon-Gleason Alien Encounter. And this is a story that I had kind of heard in myth and rumor, and you've kind of done the research. But one thing I want to kind of get, you know, kind of set the record straight early on, and I don't mean to give you a hard time early, but I think in order for people to really understand and believe the story, we got to tackle a couple things first. And that is, you know, when when I read your book, it's hard because there's not a lot of, let's say, evidence to all of this, right? And some of the things, you know, it's really just Beverly McClintock. Uh, I always I always say McClintock, and that's it. And McKittrick, McKittrick. yeah, McKittrick. I always want to. I don't know why I want to say McClintock, uh, but you know, it's interesting in the book. So we kind of have her story. She was married. She was Jackie Gleason's second wife. But a lot of the other things that you cite are, you know, less than reputable. You know, websites. Uh, there's a lot of Wikipedia sightings. There's not a lot of 
the journals or even, you know, books that have been researched. You do mention Linda Moulton Howe, who's been on this show twice before, who I love. I think she's fantastic. You mentioned Thomas Carey as well. You know, I did a whole episode of him on Roswell. I mean, he's a fascinating and fantastic investigative reporter. Uh, but some of the other things I was is a little dubious, Paul. So uh, explain that a little bit. And, and just let's I want to get where you, where did you get your information and how reliable is it before we go forward? Okay, uh, almost everyone is dead from 50 years ago, so that makes it tough. I did contact a member of the, yeah, the Nixon administration who worked for Nixon every day. Uh, he is in the book, I won't name him here, but he did give me some quotes. He was there that day when Nixon landed his helicopter on the golf course at Jackie Gleason's uh, golf tournament that Monday, February 19th. And okay. he told me, I thought for sure I was going to see Jackie Gleason get decapitated on live national television because this was on <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah. CBS. Jackie racing up to the helicopter as it landed. Couldn't yeah. wait to greet Nixon. He said that yeah. was a distinct memory. He almost got his head chopped off. But yeah, uh, they got into a golf cart and they went over to the press and they spoke to the press with each other side by side that day. Now, I go to the Nixon digitized presidential library records which has mm -hmm. all of this up until the point of 8.30 that night, where they say a file has been, or a page has been removed from this file to let mm -hmm. you know uh, there's something funny going on that they just couldn't allow in the record. So that's right. the key point in time that night where this uh, allegedly happened, very suspicious. So mm -hmm. he gets up and goes back to the Air Force Base uh, the next morning and goes north. So there's nothing uh, too suspicious within the uh, records we can see. It's the ones that they took away. However, we can piece together mm -hmm. the story. Beverly McKittrick told it three times. Uh, and each time, uh, the first two times any, anyway, she said Jackie went ballistic. Said, you're not to talk about this. You keep your mouth shut. I don't want this out to the public. Well, I want to and pause you for one second because I don't want to get too ahead of the story itself yeah, because I right. want to talk about it. I've got a specific order that I think makes will help people understand it. But I want to I, I want to understand the uh, the validity of the sources. I want to just talk about that first. So I guess it makes sense that a lot of the people are dead from this particular point in time. But where where were you getting your sources and how reliable were they? Just let's tackle that first. As a writer, you have to get them anywhere you can find them, especially when events were so long ago. I would check uh, digitized newspaper articles, magazine articles, uh, various books. I searched and searched for Beverly McKittrick, who's about 88 now, almost 89, and yeah. I couldn't find her. So I got another UFO researcher guy, can you help me? And he said, sure, and I'll look it up. And he couldn't find her either. So right. she's given these three interviews and has not changed her story, didn't retract anything. You know, yeah. she kept with it. And she easily could have said, well, I was fibbing or I just wanted attention. Uh, she right. never retracted and Jackie never denied it. So that we have that going for us. Okay, so that's fair. So, so, so a lot of this comes from the story she told. Now, in fairness, Paul, you know, you admit this in the book. There's a lot of speculation. So, so kind of... The, the, so this is kind of interesting because I don't think this story would have as much credibility if it wasn't for about a month ago when uh, David Gersh came out and basically is a as a whistleblower saying this is not not only not only not only are there aliens they're here we have their crashed craft and there are many different types of species, which right. is a lot of information for people yeah. to handle. So wherever you fall in the believability scale on that will influence this a lot. But that's someone who's been, 
you've been deemed very reputable in the intelligence community. Yeah. And that in some ways changes what we're talking about, because I think I was explaining this to a friend of mine. A lot of the stories that you, and a lot of the stuff you mentioned in the stories is a little fantastical. But if you it's only if the more stuff that we can reliably and credibly prove the less fantastical the outer fringe stuff becomes, right? Like as you move the circle of truth bigger, things that were fringe now become right next to and just one, they're only one step away from, from you know, believability instead of being five steps away. And I think that's kind of where we are with this particular story. I would agree. And as I write in the book, and you may have even uh, hinted at here, the story has become distorted, polluted by some UFO researchers who claim Jackie told me everything. Jackie right. didn't tell anybody anything except, I think, one time uh, at night when this happened, when he came home from this event. That's yeah. when he blabbed the secret and he was uh, pale, haggard. She said he was like ashened and slumped in a chair emotionally mm -hmm. really rattled. So she believed him and believes it's the truth. Now, there's a few writers who say, well, Jackie took me aside and told me the whole story. And it's, of course, a lot of nonsense, especially yeah. this urban myth that Nixon drove all the way across Miami in the middle of the night and showed up at Jackie's door in a car and said, Jackie, come with me. Uh, and right, then they right. drove another 50 miles in the dark. And no way. Didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that, I figure out how it could happen, and I think it did happen by way of uh, Marine One, the helicopter that Nixon took over Miami that very afternoon and was fond mm -hmm. of taking instead of a motorcade. So right. there's another clue because there was a helipad that Nixon and his pilot used that afternoon on live uh, television. Jackie's golf tournament was on CBS and they stopped coverage for the president of the United States to sit down and uh, get in a golf cart with Jackie and ride over to some microphones and speak. And he talked about ending the Vietnam War uh, and a few other things, made some silly remarks. Jackie did. Uh, and then they got on with the golf tournament. Jackie drove back to the helipad. It was just a short drive from Jackie's house. So that's mm. how this could have been pulled off. There was an open window for both Jackie and Nixon. There was a helicopter pad behind Nixon's Key Biscayne home and behind Jackie's home. Very, very handy for getting around quickly to an Air Force base. Sure. And so so let me just I'll just quickly. So I, I again, we're getting ahead of the story. And this is partly my fault. But so the <laughs> Nixon Gleason encounter is essentially very quickly uh, this belief that Richard Nixon took a former president. Richard Nixon took major comedian Jackie Gleason. People today may not know who he was, but he was a huge star in the 50s, star of the Honeymooners, uh, big star in the 50s, 70s. Cannonball Run, uh, I just watched. He's you know one of the, the sheriff. I think he's a sheriff. I think it's Cannonball Run or Smokey and the Bandit. Smokey and the Bandit. Smoking the Bandit. I'm sorry, yeah. I get those two confused. Uh, Burt Reynolds is the guy that's in both of those. Uh, so, But anyway, big, big uh, comedy star that Nixon took Jackie Gleason to an Air Force base to view four dead aliens and uh, this this happened, and then he came home, told his second wife was, as you mentioned, was was very upset. Told his second wife, and we get that information from his second wife mostly. And she told, as you mentioned, told the story three times. So, um, but so that's the the general story. I want to get into some of the details later, but I think this kind of I want to go back a little bit further, right? And and I think I want to go back to to your story because what's interesting about you, from what I can tell, is that you've Never seen a UFO, right? That's Is correct. That, yeah. That's right. So, but you've written a lot about UFOs and visitation. You talk about the Cape Girardeau crash in 1941, uh, which predates Roswell. 
Uh, then you talk about President Eisenhower and alien visitation, which I want to talk just briefly talk about those things, because I think that this book is really the sequel to those. And it, I want to give a little bit of a foundation as to where you're coming from. So let's start out there. Uh, I want to know why in the world does a, does a, a sane human being who's never seen a UFO before, uh, how do you get into this? Not only, I mean, I'm into it and I've never seen a UFO, but I'm not writing books about it. So how did you, how did this come about and why are you, why are you knee deep in this world? I was never a, a big UFO person growing up. And then I learned about the Cape Girardeau crash, that saga, in my mm -hmm. own hometown where my grandfather was a judge and my father was about six years old at the time. Wow. And I thought, this is utterly fascinating. Where's a book on this? Why isn't someone researching a book on this? So I took several mm -hmm. years, researched it, and produced a book. And I've been revamping it. And I hope to get that out in uh, even more expanded form this fall. So after that, uh, I was reminded, isn't there an, an exciting story of Dwight Eisenhower allegedly mm -hmm. going to an Air Force base to meet some friendly aliens back in 1954, within mm -hmm. about a year of his taking office? Well, where's a book on this? There right. is none. So I took a few years to research that and put together what I feel is a lot of circumstantial evidence that points to this really happened. And there are 10 key points about the Eisenhower story from February 19th, 1954, that matches up exactly with what Nixon did on February 19th, 1973. I don't think it's a coincidence. Uh, one of the things that backs this up is a document from 1989 called the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, Briefing uh, it's like 30-something pages, and it was leaked in 2017. And mm -hmm. in it, it mentions Eisenhower did go to an Air Force base in California and mm -hmm. met with some friendly aliens and established a kind of agreement asking them to keep at arm's length. Don't land mm -hmm. in major cities, don't set off a panic, and don't uh, uh, disrupt society here or probably anywhere. Just and to be cool. They're basically like aliens. Just to be cool if you're going to float around right. the earth. Right. Like, don't, make, don't cause a scene. Uh, since that book came out, I've, I've seen a number of articles online where cosmologists and scientists uh, firmly believe there are several, many, could be thousands of planet Earth-like planets in the cosmos. And right. that on many of these, they have evolved human life just like we are, or a little different. And the uh, Air Force pilot who spoke up about the Eisenhower encounter in the early 1980s said, they looked a lot like us, only just slight difference. They were slightly misshapen compared to us. Mm -hmm. And an Army uh, manual, you may have seen it, it's like um, Army uh, Special Operations Manual 101, right. mentions there's four different aliens coming here, and one right. of them look a lot like us, with a like maybe grayish skin tone, only a little fuzz at the top of their heads, but they're right. human-like or humanoid. And that's it was written in April of 54, in the weeks after the Eisenhower encounter. So that could have taken information directly from this landing at an airbase where Eisenhower was given the go-ahead, yeah, they're safe and they're friendly, come on over, on a golf vacation at night. And that's apparently uh, what he did. That's the story. And so I put together all of the circumstantial evidence and the digitized records and uh, a special mention within Eisenhower's records of his getting a special detachment of security for the night of April, or I mean, February 19th, 1954. I don't mm -hmm. find that uh, coincidental. 
But anyway, Nixon was Eisenhower's vice president. He did not go on that trip, but he was briefed at some point, I feel, on extraterrestrials. And there was another whistleblower who spoke up. Uh, he was ill. He knew he had nothing really great to live for. He didn't have long for this world. And you may have mentioned this in your discussion with uh, Linda Moulton Howe. His name was Cooper Stein. He mm -hmm. said that the Eisenhower story is uh, true, that he briefed Eisenhower on the UFO alien situation going on in Nevada in the years right. after the uh, 54 encounter. So uh, when he gave that briefing, he said Nixon was present and looked rather aghast like mm -hmm. he hadn't been well briefed before this, that uh, he didn't have much to say in like 1956 or 57 when this right. briefing occurred. But it laid the foundation because Eisenhower knew he had no choice. Everyone knew Nixon was the standard bearer for the party in the next election in 1960. They probably thought it's a slam dunk. He's going to win the election and be our next president. So he mm -hmm. has to be brought up to code on this. Uh, right. Obviously, that's not what took place when uh, JFK uh, defeated him, and it took eight more years for Nixon to reach office. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty interesting. So, so you know, this idea, and this is not an unusual or, a, you know, people have considered this before, that Eisenhower did meet, you know, aliens and had a treaty with them in 1954. And this is interesting, interesting because when I've... You know, I did an episode on the Roswell crash. I, I both talked to Stanton Friedman and Thomas Carey, oh. and both of them have done a lot of work. I, I'm fascinated with the Roswell crash, and when you look at it as being as being the first crash, at least one that people looked into, you hear the people, you hear the stories. Thomas Carey does a great job of doing it from all different points of view, and it's and it's a super interesting and it's very believable as a crash. Now, the Cape Girardeau, the one that's in your hometown, happened six years before that. There's even evidence that one happened in 1933 in Italy. So there, there's you know crashes have been happening, and we've been recovering them, or other people have. I, I think what what people have a hard time getting their head around is being able to keep this a secret for so long, because. Uh, a lot of people were brought in on this. And I think that's kind of the thing that I always struggle with, with as far as believability goes is even, you know, during world war two, you can tell people that, Hey, uh, you know, the America's the security's on the line. It's your patriotic duty to keep quiet about this. And that's kind of what happened with the Roswell crash We're fresh out of world war two, you know, in 41 Cape Girardeau's at the beginning of what's going to be world war two. That makes sense. We start getting later on, after the Nixon administration, I'm surprised these secrets were kept for so long. You know, that's my long-winded way of saying people like to gab uh, and lots of wives, I'm sure, have heard these stories. Yeah, it's certainly a fair question to ask. Why in the world would Richard Nixon show a comedian with no national security clearance? Yeah. Top secret stuff at an Air Force base. But you have yeah. to remember, Nixon was king of the hill by February of 73. He just won mm -hmm. an enormous landslide re-election. And all right. previous U.S. presidents by then were dead. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was dead. Alan Dulles from the CIA. They had all died. It yeah, that was like, weird. The heavens opened wide and just allowed Nixon to do whatever he wanted. Now, yeah. Jackie had a standing offer for many years. He said, I'll give $50,000 to anyone who can show me hard proof of extraterrestrial visitation. Well, hold on, hold on, let's pause. Yeah. I want to okay. pause for a second because I think this is, there's a great way to, I want to talk about this in, in piecemeal because 
I think there's three things going on here, right? You have to understand. I mean, the thing about everyone being dead around Nixon, that was weird when you start naming everybody. So yeah. he did kind of run a bit. So I want to talk about Nixon. There's Nixon. There's Jackie Gleason. There's, uh, you know, Beverly is involved in this as well. And then there's the event, right? And the buildup to the event, I think, is very particular. So let's start with Nixon. Like, I want to talk about Nixon and the work he did with, like, why would he do this? So you talk about it in, like, 1957, 1958. He's brought up the code because he will probably be the next president. So he knows about alien visit. So we're going to assume that Eisenhower met with aliens and Nixon knows what's going on at that point. So he has all of this information. In 19, you know, it, when it comes to the Watergate scandal, this takes a very big, this becomes a very big point in this because Nixon is then required to raise money in order to, um, in order to have hush money. Okay. So let's pause Nixon for a second and let's talk about Jackie Gleason because the re- Nixon's story makes a lot of sense and Jackie Gleason's story makes sense in person. So let's, let's go into Jackie Gleason. How, where did his interest in UFOs and all of this begin? When did it start? How serious was it? And, you know, would he, how, let's build the case as to why he would even want to do this in the first place. It's hard to conceive of an American who had more of an obsession with uh, extraterrestrials than Jackie Gleason, the comedian. And he spoke about it once in a while. He spent like a million dollars building his own UFO house in Peekskill, uh, uh, New York, right outside of New York City. Uh, he in made 1954, by the way, the, yeah, the years important. It started early. just after the Eisenhower encounter. Suddenly, mm-hmm, Gleason right. is all fired up. And I couldn't absolutely make a connection, but one of Eisenhower's national security advisors was Everett Gleason from Brooklyn, Jackie's home base, his same name. I'm very suspicious that uh, they could have been related and kept sure. in touch over such a matter because Jackie was so obsessed, he would badger anyone in the military or in the government that he mm. knew or any important person. Can you tell me about aliens? Are we being visited sure. or not? And yeah. he bought up uh, over 1,700 books and periodicals on the paranormal, wow. so many of them about UFOs. You can see them at the University of Miami right now in a mm. special library reading room. It's like he went nuts for the subject and who was to tell him you know you need to tone it down a notch so in a special ufo house he had telescopes put in and a tesla coil that he felt was used for communicating with aliens and allegedly Mm -hmm. one of his guests in this house outside of new york city when it was finished in 59 was richard nixon So Nixon and Gleason were good friends, at least by then, and they would go golfing together in the 60s. Uh, I've seen the photographs. I've shown some of them on my social media, the two golfing uh, together, both conservative Republicans who perspired and drank uh, a fair amount of uh, liquid refreshment, shall we say, sure, uh, at, yeah, least, yeah. at least in the evening. Well, anyway, Jackie had a bit of a cast iron stomach for that. Um, mm-hmm. And as the years passed, Jackie would badger anyone. And I'm sure he went after Nixon. Can you tell me? Can you tell me? How about telling me now? He probably right. was all over Mr. Nixon. And so yeah. by 73 in February, it was getting close to Jackie's birthday. What do you get for the man who has everything? except 
hard proof of extraterrestrial visitation, which he's offering now. The offer was pumped up to $1 million. Jackie mm -hmm. made this uh, offer on the air. He would call up a radio station in New York City, the Long John Nebble Show, and talk about mm -hmm. UFOs and say, I want the hard proof. And he would criticize some really dopey uh, cases or alleged sightings in the air uh, that were uh, put in books. He didn't believe everything. He was not a stupid man or a gullible man. Right. Right. And in reading about him, he didn't make up tall tales. He wasn't much of a stand-up comedian because he couldn't tell jokes quite like that. He was a right, sketch yeah. comic and a movie uh, character actor, and he composed music, and he did uh, dancing and played the trumpet. He was incredibly talented. He felt he had to have the best of everything, and he wanted that information from Nixon. And I think Nixon finally knuckled under and said, is that $1 million offer still good? Because I've got Watergate burglars to pay off to keep them quiet. So it was a match made in heaven. And there was a connection between the two men. They shared a lawyer named Herb Kalmbach. And he well, went, I want to okay. pause for, sorry. So I want to, because I want to talk about Jackie Gleason a little bit more, because I think there's something kind of interesting. There's a couple of things that, that I want to touch on with Jackie Gleason. So he, you know, he's a longtime popular entertainer. He does have a photographic memory, which is which is important. He was a ham radio operator, and you know he, I, you know he was always looking for NASA transmissions. You know he was always talking to people, UFO experts, trying to you know work the radio, uh, which was very popular at the time. It's how we were transmitting all of our information. You know, one of the books. I, this is you know this is only for me, but one of the books that you mentioned that he had in his gigantic library was by a guy named George Hunt Williamson who's known as Brother Philip, who I mentioned on another podcast, The Stell Experience, as he wrote a book about um, being in the Andes, which inspired um, one of the guys that, uh, that I know to spend a whole year looking for his special community in the Andes. So Brother Philip, uh, I never, I didn't know who that was. So that was interesting <laughs> to hear that he was actually, you know, uh, he had a book by him. So he has this fascination, uh, you know, and he, as you mentioned, he, made a lot of money during his time. He wanted the best of everything. Now, I have to say, I don't necessarily believe that Nixon would do this as a birthday gift. So that part I'm not I'm not 100% on. I do think he would do it for the, for the other reasons that you yeah. mentioned. So yeah. we're, we're going to get into that. Uh, and, and Long John Neville was the art bell of his time. Like he was the, um, you know, he all that fringe, Bigfoot, UFO, paranormal type of stuff. That's what that's what he was doing. And Famously, Jackie Gleason dresses up as a man from space on the honeymooners, whether that's, you know, important or not. Uh, it's still an, an it's interesting part of his obsession there, isn't it? Yeah, it, it seems like that. And one last thing is Jackie Gleason was a terrible driver, awful driver, uh, and he refused to fly. And Nixon was also a terrible driver and had people drive him everywhere. Right. So these are a couple of things that I want to keep in mind for Jackie Gleason. And I don't think you can understate just how into the paranormal and how into UFOs that he was. So now let's pick up the story. We got Watergate coming down. You know, Nixon was on top of the world. And, you know, uh, things are getting a little tricky. The water's getting turbulent for him. Yes. Politically. Uh his whole reputation, his whole presidency was starting to hang in the balance, drip by drip. There was a new story nearly every day about Nixon and his henchmen and mm -hmm. pulling crimes in order to get reelected, like breaking into the Watergate Hotel. His henchmen got caught and they had right. families to feed. They no longer were employed. They had to be fired and they had lawyers to pay. So right. uh, just one of them, E. Howard Hunt, said, I'm going to need, you know, hundreds of thousands. And John Dean, the president's lawyer who was loyal to him at that point, February of 73, says, I think we're going to need a million dollars for openers. 
Nixon mm -hmm. can be heard in January mm -hmm. and February of 73 saying yeah. this damn hush money, where are we going to get it? He was anguished about this. Where are we going to raise the money? Then in the weeks after the Gleason encounter, he's calm as can be and says, oh, I know where we have that. Uh, it's not a problem. So right. something happened. And uh, again, Nixon and Gleason shared a lawyer named Herm Herb Kalmbach, who went to jail for handing out wads of cash to uh, Watergate uh, figures in hush money, which is obstruction of justice. So mm -hmm. we don't have the hard fact of um, like a printed receipt of Jackie saying, <laughs> right. here's a check for a million dollars. But yeah. you've got to believe that uh, Nixon took a lot of uh, under the table contributions. And that's probably how that was handled. So Nixon probably wanted the money bad enough and Gleason wanted the hard proof bad enough. We've got a marriage, we've got a match, and we've got a date for February 19th uh, at that Air Force base south of Miami. Yeah, it was really interesting because, you know, he needs money. And as you mentioned, Jackie Gleason on the show offered a million dollars for proof. Uh, th this to me is is a, is a little more interesting because I don't think Nixon does. All Nixon was the greatest schemer in political history. So I don't think he's doing something out of the goodness of his heart. To <laughs> yeah. someone. You know, what I mean? like he, everything is a political savvy move. It's very Sun Tzu, you know, art of war type of thing. Like this is going to get me here. So I, he's very calm and calculated. And this makes a lot of sense, right? And and it is interesting, you know, a lot of the, again, a lot of the stuff in the book, it, it is circumstantial. And you do do a lot of speculation. But some of these things are a little bit easier for me to make the leaps than others. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, when it does come to this per period of time, things to remember about Nixon, he was meticulous with notes. He had a bunch of rooms in the White House bugged. You know, that's how paranoid he was. So the recordings you're talking about, they're available unless they're redacted or pulled out. And then there's a reason why they're redacted or removed. Yeah. Because, again, he was had he was very prolific with his note taking. So these yeah. are important things to for people listening to realize that when things go missing in Nixon's um, you know schedule, there's probably a reason for it. Yeah, Nixon really bugged several rooms uh, in the mm. White House. It's it's hard to believe now that they, yeah. he would put like one in a lamp to make sure all conversations were recorded and he could get every bit of information, supposedly right. just for his memoirs. And then he had an office in the executive office building across the street from the White House, and he had that bug. If you've ever heard some of the recordings, and I certainly have, a lot of it's pretty murky. You can't quite tell, like, maybe somebody needed to step closer to that microphone, but they <laughs> yeah, had yeah. no idea they're being bugged. Uh, there right. was one of Bob Hope uh, in the White House a few weeks after the, the Nixon event, and you mm -hmm. could barely make out Bob talking about their past golf outings, and then it was, right. like, cut off quite suddenly. So, you know, right. to, to put these things digitized, they're going to take out things for reasons of national security, and uh, any excuse that uh, anything that's really classified or embarrassing, they're going to cut that part out and put it in the presidential uh, library of uh, Nixon online. Uh, but right. Nixon did do this bugging, and he got caught uh, using his own profanities and his own schemes and things. And a lot of this came to light as fact that he wanted these uh, criminal activities undertaken in order to ensure his reelection. So that's mm -hmm. where he really got his tail caught on the crack by February of 73. Everything was rather in the balance. He needed money to shut those burglars up. Right. 
No, absolutely. And and so we come to the February of 1973, and this is kind of an interesting date. As you mentioned, there's February, late February comes up a lot, specifically the 19th, which are, there are, they are strange coincidences. I, I, I will give you that. That, that is super interesting. Uh, so let, let's talk about this, uh, you know, what actually happens, right? Um, Nick, you know, Jackie has a place in Florida. Nixon has a vacation home in Florida that he goes to a lot. Uh, the the Air Force Base that is in question here, the alleged Air Force Base where the aliens are. Uh, well, it's not an alleged Air Force Base. The Air Force Base exists, but where this uh, the, where it happens, they're all kind of close to each other. And you know, you mentioned earlier about Jackie Gleason almost getting his head cut off on television. You make an interesting <laughs> case that you know the this pro am tournament that Jackie was running at this golf course was kind of like a trial run. Can we get everything moving uh, to do to get Jackie from his house to the Air Force Base and back? It's an interesting thought, you know, it's a very interesting hypothesis because neither guy liked to drive. Uh, the, the helicopters were, it's better than an airplane, I'm guessing, even though Jackie Gleason didn't like to fly. And so this seems like a good way to get people in and out quickly, secretly, uh, and with stealth. That's correct, that uh, again, Nixon arrived at that helipad not far from Jackie's house that afternoon. So his mm -hmm. pilot knew the coordinates and how to do this, even at night, wouldn't have been a problem. Nixon visited Key Biscayne a whopping 55 times during his six-year presidency, even though he had a home in San Clemente, California, where he was from, this big luxury estate. Why did he keep going down to Key Biscayne so often? Uh, Jackie lived there, and they, the two had played golf in years past. In fact, they played golf just a few days before the big NASA space landing in July of 69. So, again, Nixon dis discovered um, he could go golfing and use that as an excuse, at least, to go down there and loaf, read papers uh, by his own uh aides or uh, his advisors uh, even admitted, we don't get much work done when we're down in Florida. Why was it so important to go to Homestead Air Force Base up to 50, 55 times? Uh, that was mm -hmm. the Air Force Base. It's been since wiped out by a hurricane uh, that uh, Nixon took for Air Force One, and then he would take the Marine One chopper to and from his Key Biscayne waterfront home. It had a helipad right behind it. So that was super convenient, and the taxpayers paid for all of this, and mm -hmm. they had a chopper pad for Jackie at his place. So I think it was just a matter of that Monday night, uh, Nixon calling over there and saying, Jackie, I've, uh, I'm sending a pilot over to your uh, chopper pad. I've got something to show you at uh, an air base. It's possible Nixon went with him, but we don't know. I would imagine Nixon took his chopper directly to Homestead and waited for Jackie, who uh, was probably picked up that night. And uh, it was just a short walk to the chopper pad and was taken to Homestead Air Force Base, where uh, his wife said that Jackie mentioned there was an armed guard escort for the two of them once they arrived and went to a special laboratory on the base. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a wild story because this is where things get kind of interesting. So let's talk about the, this this February, uh, this this the actual encounter, right? So, so at, you know, Beverly's telling this story, but I, I want to get this, what exactly, you know, goes, because you're kind of proving, you know, in a lot of ways, you're, you're almost proving a murder here, except you're proving something else, <laughs> right? You're proving mot motive and opportunity. Right. Uh, and, and I think you, you, there's a good, there's good motive here. 
right? Yeah. And there's a clear opportunity. You you know, you walk through, you know, in the book, you walk through all the things that happened from February 16th through the 19th. Uh, there's a lot missing from that particular period of time. Uh, but so let, let, let's walk through the story in a little bit of detail about what happened. So Jackie Gleason is picked up. He's taken to the Air Force Base. And according to Beverly, what happens when he lands? Uh, that Nixon and Gleason were escorted across the base to a rather secluded area where this was, was this kind of lab, and there was an armed guard at the door, and they were allowed in. Nobody's going to tell the commander-in-chief, the most popular president we'd had in a long time at that point. He had huge poll ratings, and, mm-hmm. you know, he's commander of all armed forces. So, mm-hmm. he, you know, they went in and looked at this uh, laboratory. It was kind of a medical lab or almost like a morgue in which Jackie told his wife later that night there were four examining tables and four alien bodies stretched out on these tables, each body about like two, two and a half feet, I would imagine, not big, uh, aliens that don't match the Eisenhower encounter story, and they don't match the Cape Girardeau crash story nor Roswell. Uh, Mm. But they do match almost perfectly in the description Jackie gave to the old 1955 Hopkinsville, Kentucky uh, UFO uh, sighting and alien invasion of their house of this farm family. They said that's a crazy story, by the way. (laughs) It's a great story on its own. They said like two, two and a half foot little aliens with big pointy ears and big eyes. Uh, harassed them for hours and hours, and they took out their shotguns and fired away and couldn't kill them. Well, the aliens that Jackie described were about two, two and a half feet tall and big pointy ears and big bug eyes. So uh, if that's the same race, who knows? It might be. But Jackie said uh, apparently they all looked rather identical, and he said they must be getting ready for... uh, uh, maybe an autopsy. I think he said that they had been embalmed. And you've got to wonder, how did he come to that conclusion? And I think he was speculating on that. And he said to his uh, his wife at the time, I think there must have been a crash near here because there were four Mm. of these dead alien bodies. Well, the crash could have come from anywhere, anywhere in the world and certainly in America. So that's kind of uh, drawing a a fall, well, a shaky conclusion. Uh, But at any rate, uh, the bodies were there and he was allowed to inspect them. I bet he was not allowed to touch them. But who knows? Jackie may have just bolted right through. So excited to see this at last. (laughs) I just don't think Nixon was a fun guy whatsoever and was pulling a prank on Jackie. I've, I've read a lot about Nixon. I've never heard of him pulling a prank on anyone or saying anything humorous. Uh, there's no funny uh, book about uh, Nixon's wackiest <laughs> moments, you know. Uh, right. He was, he was uh, a very serious man. He had a lot yeah. of things on his plate. The Vietnam War, the Cold War, China, Russia, Cuba. Uh, the Russians were still in Cuba, 90 miles off of the coast of uh, Miami. And uh, there was the uh, issue of are we being visited and uh, keeping the economy stable and uh, keeping uh, the UFO story under wraps. So he had a lot of pressure and maybe he cracked a little, but he was desperate. He wanted to save his reputation and keep those burglars and their lawyers silent uh, from the Watergate fiasco that was starting to expand. So uh, well, I want to pause there for a second. Yeah, and I think you're I think you're right. That motive and I think that motive is huge, right? Like I think that motive 
I, I don't think it can be underestimated just how much Nixon loved being in power, liked right. being president. Uh, a big parallel to, to today uh, you could you could draw. Uh, and I think that you have a guy who wants to stay in power any means necessary. And this is a way to do that. And you're right. I don't think they're there. He's not a funny. He's not a jokester. He's not a silly little rapscallion. Uh, Nixon was pretty <laughs> serious. Uh, he was pretty unfunny. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he, he was so unfunny. He was probably a little bit funny. You know, he was like Hank Hill in that respect. Yeah, he was, uh, by all accounts, socially awkward. And yeah. that uh, yeah. he just Which is didn't, funny. Yeah, he didn't know a joke. <laughs> if he if he had to tell one to save his life, I don't think yeah. he could do it. And he could barely no. even shake hands with some people when they come to the Oval Office, according to uh, one of his assistants. So yeah. uh, this looks like a serious thing from a serious guy. Uh, you could say, well, maybe he found the Air Force stitched together some dummies, but. I find it uh, awfully difficult to believe that Nixon would go to all this trouble and risk uh, national security clearances and such like this or a scandal. He knew Jackie well, and Jackie was a financial supporter previously and right. knew how to keep his mouth shut, which he did except to his wife. Linda yeah, I was going to say. Hold on he, a second. He, <laughs> Jackie <laughs> came home and said, I was sworn to secrecy, which he naturally blew through uh, by yeah. midnight when he came home, ashen and pale, slumped in a chair and told his wife everything. Uh, she yeah. mentioned this in 1974 in an interview and in 83 and then again in 2003. Didn't change a word. Said he came home emotionally devastated by this uh, encounter at the Air Force Base. Well, it's interesting because she does mention it in 74. She says, you know, I think he, he comes back at like 1130 at night. Right. Uh, there's no car. A car doesn't pull up. Right. You know, there's no, you know, that which is an these are all interesting details that help build the story that clearly he didn't. And as you mentioned, he didn't drive 50 miles to the Air Force Base. Yeah. It's a long way to go. Uh, this, so these are all very interesting stories. It does. You know, it, it is tricky when you look at who people do tell, because in some ways, these types, this type of information, I think it's very difficult to be an intelligence officer having to keep these national secrets. I don't think human beings are built for it. So it doesn't surprise me that he would tell his wife, but I do think it is extraordinarily uh, irresponsible if this event happened for him to have mentioned anything. And then, you know, I think another interesting part of this story is why, why did Beverly decide to share this? And yeah. her relationship with Jackie is also super interesting and how it kind of devolves right after this event. Uh, you could do that in one gesture. Money. <laughs> the money. She wanted money from Jackie. And, you know, yeah. this was her leverage. She had something shocking. Uh, I will mention that since my book came out, right after it came out, Mm -hmm. uh, I could not go back and add this information, but a story came out online that Jackie had told a few show business friends who had nothing to do with UFOs whatsoever. What about mm -hmm. this story your wife told about you seeing aliens? And he just said, I know it's real. I know they're here. And they, they pressed him. Well, how do you know this? And he simply said a couple of times, Nixon showed me the proof. So otherwise, to the general public, or Gleason kept his mouth shut and did not divulge what happened that night. It was mostly to his wife that night when he was all shaken and upset that he blurted out the truth, that uh, he was allowed to see this. 
Now, I put it in the book, and we all know anyone can make up a story and put it on the internet, and you can't believe everything you hear. Which but is why, a- which is why I wanted to double check your sources early on, yeah, because some uh, of those sites, you, those websites you cite, are, are a little dubious. Yes, uh, they're 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 polluted by these UFO researchers who put their own slant on things. But exactly. there was a man who wrote in to a MeTV uh, website of all things. MeTV used to run and still does the Honeymooners with Jackie Gleason. So mm-hmm. MeTV ran the story of the Nixon Gleason encounter from. Uh, little bits and pieces they heard over the years. And they asked folks, what do you think? Well, a man wrote in and he sounded like someone who had been on the base at the time. He said, yes, they did go to the air base that night. And they even went to an Air Force hangar on the base. And you can see the ba- uh, the hangar from the highway that runs right by the base. He said it was that uh, clear at Homestead. And wow. when they went into the air base hangar, uh, the airport airplane hangar, there was a craft, apparently a silver metal disc that was up in the air. It was like activated or alive. According to this source, it had to be tethered by cables and that Jackie was allowed to see this. Mm-hmm. Now, that's an interesting level of detail. Again, anyone can make up anything. Sure. But uh, if this man had been on the base and had seen some of this stuff taking place, He got it off his chest, and uh, that may be another factor why Jackie was so shook up when he got home, his wife said, close to midnight, and just walked in the front door and, uh, you know, slumped into a chair and blurted out, I've just seen the bodies of dead aliens. Nixon showed me the proof at last. So this is all uh, part of the story. And another part that Beverly relates, if you want to go ahead and and touch upon this now, is that for days, if not weeks, Jackie was in a big roller coaster mood swing. He would thunder angrily at the government for hiding this big secret that he saw in person. And he said, they make the people of this country sound like fools and liars who report UFOs when they know the truth. They've got it, and I've seen it. And then his mood would swing the other way. I got to see the proof above all other Americans. The president of the United States showed me this. It was the most amazing thing. She said he would be giddy and happy with excitement that he had this exclusive look that all other Americans could not have. And then it would swing back the other way. Why are they keeping this a secret? Why did they swear him to secrecy? You know, right, yeah. uh, he said before they left the base, Nixon swore me to secrecy. So he did violate that once. Uh, it reminds me of the Cape Girardeau UFO story in which a Christian pastor said he went and saw the bodies in the craft. The military arrived, swore him to secrecy, and he went home and his family said, you look terrible. You know, what happened to you? Well, I'm going to tell you this story once, and I'll never mention it again. And the pastor told the whole story near midnight to his family and never mentioned it again. And that's exactly what Jackie Gleason did, apparently. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I I think in another interview you did, uh, you you know, it was talked about how everyone has a confidant. And then their confidant has a confidant. And you may tell one person, and even though it's not really a game of telephone, everyone finds out about it, but no one knows that everyone else knows, which is kind of, an <laughs> yeah. in, you know, it's an interesting way to have information. Where right. it's different if people are gossiping, then you know that they know. 
um, which is kind of interesting. I also want to mention before I get too far away, you know, you mentioned MeTV, uh, which is a, a great a great network. You know, they helped me find a video a video game historian. Uh, I'll link to that episode as well, completely unrelated to what we're talking about. But I love fitting in a shameless plug here and there. Uh, who, who doesn't love that? So this, this story, I think... Um, you know, I, I just have trouble with with him only saying it once, because as you mentioned, I'd like to see this article where he mentioned it to his showbiz buddies as well. Because yeah. it sounds like, depending on when that was in the timeline, you know, he got little looser lips as time went on. Right. Because for a long time, he was completely denying. Well, he didn't. He didn't say anything. He just did not comment on Beverly's story and hope that it would go away. He never right. denied it. Uh, he never confirmed it. And you know. Silence is silence. You know, you can infer what you want, but the facts are he was silent about it, right? Yeah, he could so easily have squashed the whole thing right at the time in the first mm -hmm. interview in 74 when she wrote an entire article on it in 83. Right. Uh, he was obviously dead by 87 and couldn't comment on her follow-up interview uh, in 2003. So those first two interviews, he could have said, that's a lot of nonsense. Don't believe these lies. She's making it up. But he didn't right. say anything like that. He refused to comment. So I think that's very telling in itself. And again, Beverly never changed her story. She just said that uh, this happened to me and she wanted to tell the truth. And I think she did as far as she knows. I don't see any grand embellishment. If you were going to do that, wouldn't you make yourself out to be the big hero somehow in this story that Beverly would? Uh, and she, Maybe. Yeah. And she Maybe. didn't really do that. Jackie told me this story, she said, and uh, she wanted to write a tell-all book by 1983. And she said, uh, to do this, I'm going to promote this book I'm getting ready by writing a full-page article for the National Enquirer, which was most yeah. interested in UFO stories. Now, we know the National Enquirer doesn't have the greatest reputation all the time, but they were often, in those days, in the 70s and 80s, the only media outlet that would touch UFO stories. And even uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek and a group of uh, UFO experts uh, became uh, a panel for the uh, National Enquirer to look at UFO stories and try to determine what's true and what's a lot of nonsense. So mm -hmm. uh, the people of the UFO community went to the Enquirer in those days. So that starts to make more sense, too. Uh, Beverly, like I said, is still alive, but I think the point is she told her story and she's just got nothing else to say. There has been no tell-all book in the, uh, like, uh, 33 years since Jackie passed away, 36 years, I guess, and, yeah. uh, uh, maybe she'll release something upon her death someday, posthumously, but until then, we have to rely on these three interviews that were not changing and did not retract the story. So now I want to ask a question about because uh, I, I think motivation is important here, right? I mean, so why people say certain things mean something. You know, when people are on their deathbed and they don't really have anything to lose, right? If you're on your deathbed and you tell a story, people tend to give it a little more credence, right? With with Beverly, she wasn't on her deathbed. They were still married at the time. So why in 1974 is she telling the story knowing full well Jackie's going to be upset yeah. by it? She and Jackie were living apart at that time, but still married. And she said, I'm still hopeful that we can get together. But when that story hit, Jackie said, uh, or she said, Jackie hit the roof in 74 and they filed for divorce. And it took a few years. It got a little 
uh, heated, a little contentious, but they did get divorced. So she was long gone out of the picture by 83 when she decided to write this tell-all book. I'm Mm -hmm. suspicious that it might have been for uh, a bump in pay from her uh, alimony uh, or if uh, Jackie had uh, recently gotten into uh, uh, some television programming and he didn't work in movies really uh, from this uh, 73 encounter until like uh, Smokey and the Bandit went. Yeah you know, huge. It's still on TV to this day. So he got more and more parts, more and more money. And by early 1983, maybe she wanted it on the gravy or something. But uh, that is speculation on my part. Uh, She had some sort of motivation. But but I think that's the part that that I don't love is that whenever money is a motivation, it becomes tricky to believe what someone's saying, right? Like with Nixon's financial motivation, that makes sense. He needs money. You know, he's friends with Nick, with with Gleason. Gleason wants this. He's offered a million dollars. It's kind of, you know, it's free money for Nixon. That makes sense to me, that financial part. But when Beverly's doing and telling the story for money, that's where I start to just be a little suspicious. And what's unfortunate is that her story is really the only, quote unquote, evidence or proof for this entire event right everything else is kind of everything else, all the research you did is kind of built off of the belief that the leap that her story is accurate yeah and i think that you know what i mean like that that's where i i wish it wasn't like that as well okay but to be fair she did not write that tell-all book in 83 she was only threatening to do so and wrote yeah, an article right. that she felt would promote it for the national Enquirer. and when jackie hit the roof again she clammed up real fast. There will be no book yeah. and there has been no book, no series of interviews and promotional tours and speeches. She's kept her mouth shut. And right. so okay. I think that yeah. probably speaks more in her favor. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, in 74, again, it's leverage, you know, so, um, you know, it's it's just one of those things that I wish wasn't the case because that will always shed a negative light on the validity of the story. But I think that, you know, um, I'd love to read that article that you mentioned. You said it wasn't in the book. You know, I'd love to read the article where he mentioned it to other his other friends, because, you know, in truth, human nature is such that unless you're a trained intelligence, you know, agent, keeping those types of things to yourself is difficult. Human beings are we we are built to communicate. We're built. What is the goal of spending all that money to learn a truth that you can't tell anyone, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, I mean, there is something that's like you, it, it's, that has got to be extraordinarily unfulfilling for Jackie. It's both fulfilling and unfulfilling. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's two different motivations that would cause people to talk that we haven't really discussed. One okay. is if you feel you're in ill health and maybe not long for this world, right. that you might say, I got to get this off my chest. Uh, and that's the story of the Air Force pilot who uh, said he was at the Eisenhower encounter, said I was brought in for my uh, expertise on aerodynamics. I've discovered by the early 80s that everyone who was there that night with Eisenhower had died, and I don't want the story to to get lost, to die out. So that could be a factor. And another is people start drinking 
and saying mm. things they probably shouldn't. Uh, Jackie had a bit of a cast iron stomach, but he was quite a drinker. And uh, he m told people in his private circle, uh, and I wanted to get this information into the book. I said, can we go back and, and somehow put this in electronically? No, yeah. the book's been published, it's out. But the article said, Nixon showed me the proof, Jackie told some friends privately. He was yeah. adamant that, uh, you know, I wasn't able to get this into my book, but I think that helps yeah. buttress the story. I would mm -hmm. like to know specifically what friends said this. But again, right. so many people are dead from 40 or 50 years ago, and yeah. uh, the world has moved on. And, you know, you pointed out David Grush, this mm -hmm. source uh, from the government, uh, who has a very fine a record of service to America and in intelligence services and the military Absolutely. has said there were, there really are UFO crashes. We've got the bodies and the debris, and I've mm -hmm. seen the reports. However, he didn't produce a single page, didn't, right. you know, a photocopy. Here's no film footage and here's no uh, photographs. But apparently what he says so far is only a taste of what's coming. And there's a couple other whistleblowers that I've heard about uh, a man talking about a crash, and I think South America, and how he was part of the uh, the cover up mm -hmm. and the recovery process of that. And supposedly yeah. there's going to be some hearings in Congress with uh, Tim Burchett, a congressman from Tennessee, trying to get to the truth. So mm -hmm. we may hear more of this information, whether the government likes it or not, from a yeah. whistleblower or more than one. He, I'm hopeful Mr. Grush will open up a dam and the floodgates will open, you know, and more mm -hmm. will come pouring out this year. Yeah. We'll, well see. I think <laughs> we, we certainly will. You know, I think what, what what's interesting about him is, again, it's this motivation factor, right? He's not leaking documents. He's following the whistleblower protocol. Uh, you know, his his argument is that the, the the panels are not following the laws that recently put in about UFO reporting to Congress. So everything he's doing is by the book and legal. This isn't like a, a data dump that he's just sending out to the world. And to me, that ends a little that adds a, a lot more credibility to what he's trying to do. You know, is this real? Is it not? I don't know. But it is probably the most legitimate attempt at this, you know, by by a reputable source in a long time, not the only one, but it no one has done anything of this caliber, right? Because yeah. this is not just the admission of we, you know, because right now the government has released videos that say, oh, this is weird stuff. We don't know yeah. what it is, but yeah. this is three steps further. There are aliens. They have crashed and there are multiple species. Those are again, those are huge jumps, because if all of that's true, that rewrite, all the stuff that was fringe now isn't so fringe anymore. And that's where I think all of the stuff we're talking about becomes way more believable. Yeah. If he has the tangible proof with him, he has mm -hmm. not produced it. However, right, can you correct. imagine him going forward with, here's the report, or I've got a photocopy with pictures and everything. They would haul him to prison so fast for, you know, breaking uh, classification regulations and, right. you know, uh, security clearances uh, just snapped. His whole life would be in ruins. So yeah. we're frustrated that so far he doesn't show the proof but he says he's got more information to come and all we can do is stand by and hope this is a, an unfolding process and that he doesn't suddenly meet with an accident <laughs> right. <laughs> right well and also keep in mind the pentagon approved his statements right yeah. like that's something Which also to consider yeah 
There's a, there's a lot of things to consider, and and I think that this you know this will shed a light on what we're talking about. I mean, this is why it's a perfect time to do a story like this because Nixon, Gleason, you know, the Eisenhower meeting aliens. This all seems, as you mentioned, the stuff of the National Enquirer. But what I learned in school was that the reason why the National Enquirer is allowed to to publish this is that to to, to file a lawsuit, you would have to say that it's untrue and. People have not don't have that proof. So the National yeah. Enquirer, a lot of the stuff that they prove is is true. It's just trash usually. Yeah, I right? or what the, we consider yeah. trash. My dad was a Jackie Gleason fan, and he got mm -hmm. the Enquirer. And back mm -hmm. in the uh, '80s, in the spring of '87, he showed me a copy of the Enquirer that said Jackie Gleason on his deathbed with cancer, and I. I got to admit, my reaction is, Dad, don't believe that stuff. Jackie Gleason's just fine. Well, it was the truth. They yeah. had found it out. And Jackie mm -hmm. died shortly thereafter of cancer mm -hmm. and a, a number of other uh, health issues. And, yeah. of course, like the John Edwards uh, love child situation that he had Absolutely. a mistress. And it all came true because the Enquirer dug into it like other mainstream media won't do so. So exactly. sometimes they put out a bunch of junk and sometimes they had the real scoop. I would say they have the real scoop more often than not. It's just usually... It's just usually salacious stuff that you probably shouldn't be digging into. But rarely are they sued for ha for having inaccurate information, for slander, for libel. Um, you know, that's what's interesting about the National Enquirer. But I don't want to go down a whole rabbit hole in National Enquirer uh, unless they're, they want to become a sponsor. But I don't think that they do. <laughs> so how can people how can people the promotion we need to do is promoting your book. So how can people find it? How can they find you and learn more about the work you're doing? Uh, you can go to Amazon, where all of my books are for sale. Uh, this latest book and the Eisenhower book are published by foundations, but they pushed everything onto Amazon, so I would advise folks to go there directly. Uh, my first five books came out through Argus Books, argusbooks.com, and uh, I'm going to be revamping the Cape Girardeau story with a little bit more information, updating that uh, for uh, hardback uh, later this year. Also, my book has, uh, on Eisenhower, come out on audiobook, and they did a fine mm. job of the narrator uh, at Tantor.com, and they're getting ready to do the Nixon book similarly. So uh, that'll be fun, and uh, I can be found on Facebook, LinkedIn, uh Let's see, Twitter, Instagram, all the usual social media. And I try to talk about facts and what has been alleged and not wild theories. I try not to get uh, carried away with what looks like obvious artificial intelligence. And there's a whole other subject for a show someday. This, this stuff that you can just whip up at home now, who can trust uh, any modern story that uh, comes out with, um, let's say, uh, an alien and a photograph with a with a president or a citizen, you know, and this right. whole Las Vegas landing story, is, if that's valid, you can make up lots of stuff, funnel it through AI and create the most realistic looking videos. It's yeah. a scary future we face. No, it is. Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, what about you know, what about website? You have a website? Uh, I have a website. I really should keep that up a little better. It's www.mo41.info. And uh, I take emails from anyone who's got uh, serious uh, information or uh, data they want to express. And uh, some of that's been very helpful, especially in the Cape Girardeau case, uh, where uh, there are a few people who've come forward to say they knew 
uh, generally where it crash landed outside of town. And even if I had the absolute uh, uh, specific site, I would not release that to the public because I don't want to get sued at someone's private property there. But uh, it, <laughs> as you read in the Nixon book, there are so many places you'd like to go now. But uh, after 50 years, Nixon's house was torn down in Key Biscayne. Yeah. The hurricane in the 1990s wiped out Homestead Air Force Base. It's been nicely redone, but it's not uh, the same kind of base anymore. Uh, Jackie right. Gleason's house in uh, uh, Louder Hill, uh, Florida, actually uh, burned pretty bad and was rebuilt, but he's passed away. And and so uh, that's in private property hands. His golf tournament uh, was closed. And now his golf course that was named the great one after him behind his home, that's been closed to the public. Uh, so many things have changed and not always for the better, but that's life. No, it is. <laughs> that is true. But one of the things that is for the better uh, is is finding this show. You know, FastSayNouns.com is where you can find it. I'm going to put links to all of your social media so people can get to you and get to your books very easily. And, of course, my social media is going to be very simple to find, and that's Fascinating Noun on Twitter, Fascinating Nouns on Facebook. And that's where you find us. We're going to have lots of information. I'm going to try to find that, that Nixon story, if you don't mind sending it to me. I'd like to put a link to it as well, uh, where he talks, mentioned this to us friends. Uh, but this is uh, just a wild story, Paul. Uh, I mean, it's just crazy. You've done a lot of great research and you've connected dots uh, that I think paint a picture that is way more believable than I think one would imagine when they hear it uh, initially. So that's a great job. Great job with the book. And, and I loved it. I can't read to re can't wait to read the Eisenhower one as well. Okay. Well, I thought, uh, that would make a good, uh, Christmas present for you in July, <laughs> <laughs> Christmas in July. I there, <laughs> I love it. Who, who doesn't love Christmas in July? Yeah. So well, thank you so much for being yeah. on the show and, and everything that you've done. Well, thank you. And I, it was my pleasure. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is, once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. And speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of FascinatingNouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.